Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is the 3rd of February. Michael, how have you been? Fine, Gary, thank you very much. So, Michael, I wanted to start off with just something that's not terribly important to us here at all. You know those news stories where they're really serious, but you see them, and something about the phrasing of them just makes you laugh? Yeah. So I, I saw this one on uh, RTE. RTE have a thing called Brainstorm, where they get academics to write pieces for them. And um, because they're academics, some of it is quite informative, and some of it is just the sort of batshit crazy you can only have if you've got tenure. And no one in 15 years has ever said, I think you might need to rethink that. Mm-hmm. So this this is uh, from the Irish Times from yesterday. Why Myanmar's coup may be a major step backwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, that's, that, that's, high, that's your high-class journalism there. You see, that, Gary, is why you need academics and professional journalists or experts in the area to explain things to people like you and I. Because... On the face of it, you'd have said, military coup in a country has to be good news. Why could it not be? You look all over the world, military coup in Greece, good news. Military coup in Portugal, good news. Military coup, Russia, tempted, that was almost good news. Anywhere. Brazil, the deposition of Dom Pedro, which I know we paid very strongly about. The last emperor of Brazil. Military coup there, good news. Allende coup in Chile, good news. It's all good news. Except apparently not in Burma. Myanmar, Michael. Myanmar. Burma identifies as Myanmar, and we need to respect its lifestyle choices. I wonder did they ask Burma? Did anybody go up and down Burma, listening closely to the land and saying, would you prefer to be called Myanmar? The French don't, you know. The French never changed, apparently. I'm saying this on the basis of an article I read, I think, in the Telegraph a couple of days ago, where they said that they still use Birami or something, but anyway, it's what they used to use before. It's not Myanmar anyway. Well, the French have never really cared what the colonials think. French never cared really what anybody except the French think, I suppose. And for a very brief period, Germany. <laughs> yeah. No, they, I think they still care what the Germans think. They just don't. They like to talk about it quietly and amongst themselves. Reading through Orti in a desperate search for news, and that did legitimately make me laugh. I like the doubt about it, the ambiguity of just sort of. I mean, maybe there are positives. There was that genocide. And that did happen under Aung San Suu Kyi. But then the military did carry out that genocide. Well, I suppose it would be clo- it'd be more accurate to say it continued to happen. I, I think intensified, perhaps. Did, I, I, I wasn't paying sufficient attention, you know. Excuse me, genocide isn't really a big deal these days. I mean, it's really not. It used to be apparently a big deal, but every time I bring it up to people, they're just like, you will not let that go, will you? God, the genocide and the Chinese and the Uyghurs and the genocide and the, and the prison camps and the sterilizations and the rapes and the murders and the taking of the organs. God, Gary, would you get over it? Listen, we said never again. Then there was the option of a moderately lucrative telecommunications deal. No, you see there, I, I, I corrected on you, you on this before, Gary. It is not moderately lucrative. It is wildly lucrative. I wonder, could you map attitudes to, to, to these kinds of things, like geographically in Ireland? Because as we know, um, the, the local government of County Cork regards these things very much from a culturally relativistic perspective, I would say, because what was the phrase? You know, every culture has its own... We understand that China has different cultural values, something like that. Yeah, and it's just I'm just curious because on the basis that Simon Coveney uh, went to Turkey. Uh, I don't know if he went to Kusadasi for a swim, but he went to Turkey anyway. And he told the Turks uh, straight out, told Premier Erdogan that he was, you know, cheering on the member- Turkish membership of the EU and invited Erdogan back to Ireland, I believe? Or did I dream that? Michael, some people say things like Turkey is, or at least was, near genociding the Kurds. But to those people, I would say, well, when has that ever happened before? Yeah, you know, you have to say, let's look, you know, everything is increments. We get better in increments, not in great leaps. They actually had a genocide against the Armenians, right? And then there was the genocide against the Assyrians. Now, nobody ever talks about that, by the way. If we want to get aerated about genocides, the Assyrians were a Christian population down in the in the old Ottoman Empire, I think in the 1880s or so. They went down and they, they killed as many of them as they could. Helped, I might add, and not just for the sake of fairness and balance, quite substantially by Kurdish forces, but there you go. Saladin was Turkish, you know. There's a fun fact. 
for a table quiz. Saladin. That is a fun fact, I think. But the Kurds are there, you know, ungenocided. I think what we should do is we should give Ansan Suki uh, back all of her awards that we took off her. You know what? I thought you were going to say for genuine for a second. I thought you were going to say we should give Erdogan partial credit, you know, for not having a genocide against the Kurds. Although, in fairness, they, then again, there are a lot of Kurds. I think people don't realise quite how many Kurds there are in eastern Turkey and how big eastern Turkey is. It's a tough old one. No, no, I think we should give her back the awards. Because then one of two things can happen, Michael. Either, you know, we're right and she restores democratic rule somehow. And we let her keep the awards this time because the genocide happened in the past. And, you know, let's not hang on to that. Or it goes wrong and we at least get to take the awards away from her a second time. And I want to see NGOs have to do that again. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, I, I one of my one of the best my one of my best days was spent uh, just thinking about Kurds, going around. I was being shown around Istanbul with a friend of mine by a Kurdish lawyer. He was an activist uh, on behalf of the Kurdish people. He used to act as a defence lawyer for Kurdish politicians and people involved in say things like the PKK. Anyway, he'd been doing this for a number of years, and which had caused immense anxiety in his friends and his family because. Gary, it surprised you to know that it was not unknown in Turkey at the time for lawyers involved in that kind of activity to just to go out for the paper of a morning and never find their way home. Well, it's a tricky business, Michael, taking steps outside your front door. Is that how The Hobbit started? It's a big city and, you know, there are a lot of bridges and that is, the, it's, it's deep water. But anyway, he got a job uh, not long previous, before we met him. He got a job working for uh, some human rights, international human rights agency anyway. And his mother was so relieved, he explained to us, because everybody said, oh, that's great now, he's working for this international, he's safe. And it, it, it joking, I was, but what he then said to me, just if, in that moment, sitting there drinking tea, this beautiful place beside the, the Bosphorus, I thought, oh, this is a man that actually, this is a real man, this is what real men do, because I said to him, so, oh, you're... That's great. You're, 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 she said, oh, no, that's what we said to ma'am. The truth is, the only difference now is if I disappear, it'll make, it might make some of the international papers before it would have just, it would have just happened. So there is, uh, we, while we're talking about genocide, so there's two countries we're very cosy with, Turkey and China, that I wanted to talk about briefly. Turkey, just to give you a, a quote from Genocide Watch, Michael. Genocide Watch watches genocides shockingly enough and tells you it has like a scale of like genocide light to what I, I can't believe it's not genocide and where is turkey uh on a 10 point scale in northern syria they're at stage nine extermination with the turkish army and its mercenary allies as the perpetrators and opposition uh, leaders kurdish civilians and kurdish fighters in northern syria uh, syria as the victims uh, Turkey as a whole is considered to be in the organization, polarization, and persecution stage of genocide. Uh, oh, sorry, of the pre-genocide. It's like a pre-workout. Gets you going. It's the origin story. Kurdish leaders are banned from office, kept in pre-trial detention for being members of a terrorist organization. Journalists, human rights activists, and opposition leaders are arrested, imprisoned, and disappeared. And women are victims of increased femicide. So that's Turkey. No, no, sorry, Gary. You see, you, you know what you've done there? You take, you've gone to some kind of a hippie, liberal, lefty group like whoever these people are. Their business is genocide. So, Gary, wherever they look, they're going to find genocide because that's their business. We know that what they're saying is not true. We know that Turkey is a liberal democracy which shares the basic values of things like the Helsinki Convention. And how do we know that? Because all the people who said it wasn't got shot. You see, t t you, you read news. Oh, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Sometimes the best thing is to kill all the unhappy people. That's a solid lesson in politics. Thing is, you can't join the EU unless that's the kind of country you are. You have to demonstrate that you're a functioning democracy with a commitment to human rights and share the core values of the European Union. Now, obviously, Turkey would not be getting the support of someone like Simon Coveney to join the EU unless that was the case. I think that's that's a knockdown, logically perfect argument. As long as there are absolutely no follow-on questions, I couldn't say anything about that. There you go. Simon Coveney is committed to European values. European values demand that uh, democracy, uh, that demands for democracy and human rights. 
Simon Covey is advocating for Turkey. Therefore, Turkey is a country committed to democracy and human rights. Yes, let's talk about another country that Simon Covey is very fond of. Oh, no, no, please, not not China again. The BBC has just released some more information, a bit of a new study uh, of... Uh, they managed to talk to uh, some Uyghur camp detainees. Oh, no, no, hold on, again, again. Uyghur camp detainees. How how are these people not going to be unbiased and impartial in their reporting? I mean, that's a fair point, Michael. And yet, we'll. I think we can trust our listeners to see the underlying bias here. So I'll give you the BBC's headline. Their goal is to destroy everyone. Uyghur camp detainees allege systematic rape. Paranoia. Um... Let's see, uh, systematic rape, sexual abuse, torture at uh, Chinese re-education camps, uh, women being forcibly prostituted. Yeah, yeah, it's actually, it's pretty much what we'd hear before. It's just more personal this time. I mean, how many times are you going to do this story? Probably until the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs responds with something more detailed than uh, we raise our concerns with China in multiple venues. You know, all I tell you, sir, Sophie Schall did not survive the Second World War. Okay, they named a prize after her and a le- and somewhere and a street somewhere. But there's very little business in being right about these things. You're only going to get credit after you're dead. One interesting thing about this story is they also interviewed uh, interviewed a Kazakh woman who was detained for eighteen months, who says that her job was to um, strip Uyghur women and handcuff them to pipes. And leave them alone with Chinese men. And then clean up the room afterwards. Uh, And the women would, or the men, would pay. Uh, Rape, force me to go into the room, force me to take these women's clothes off, uh, lie down quietly, cry, destruction of spirit. um, Yeah, uh, authoritative and detailed evidence of sexual abuse and torture at a level... clearly greater than what we had assumed which is quite interesting because i think we'd assumed it was happening at quite a high level yeah and that's cheered me up oh no we're not finished michael oh let's see torture torture more torture that's not the type of torture i want the quote on though oh uh, there were four types of electric shock the chair the glove the helmet and anal rape with a stick the screams echoed throughout the building i could hear them during lunch and sometimes when I was in class. Rape was common. Guards picked the girls and young women they wanted and took them away. After that, let's see, uh, she described witnessing a harrowing public gang rape of a woman of just 20 or 21 who was brought before about 100 other detainees to make a forced confession. After that, in front of everyone, the police took turns to rape her. While carrying out this test, they watched people closely and picked out anyone who resisted, clenched their fists closed their eyes or looked away and took them for punishment. If you looked away, Mm -hmm. God, it's like the last scene in Clockwork Orange, isn't it? Then again, Michael, it sounds horrible, but she says, I could hear the screams when I was in class. So maybe it was a school. Maybe it's not a camp at all. And lunch. There was lunch as well. In fact, there were lunch. Um, Apparently the quality of those lunches declined over time, Michael, and there's... Some talk of forced starvation, so even the lunches had downsides. Downsides to lunch. Yes, there's not enough of it. It's a very terrible word, Gary, when there's a downside to lunch. Well, Michael, you might be shocked, but in the concentration camps, there can be downsides to many things. Well, indeed, it sounds like this. if you were, if I was, in, if I was in the camp, I would be more than shocked. That just reminds me of uh, the Norm Macdonald comment of that Hitler. He really was a jerk, wasn't he? Yeah, the more you hear about him. The more you think he was up, he was up to nothing. He was up to no good. He really wasn't. Anyway, so this this is I mean I've I've sent the Department of Foreign Affairs a number of uh, questions about China. I've sent Simon Coveney's office a number of uh, questions about China. We will do nothing about this. We will ignore it and keep our head down because it's you know, it's um there's a trade deal somewhere or milk or something like that. But you know what, Gary, leaving the unspeakable horror of it to one side, I would have thought that. If we're looking just simply at this thing from the point of view of the real, the real politique of international relations, right? That the last little while has been a lesson that dealing with China in this way is not really, isn't, isn't, is not a long-term 
it's not a long-term positive plan for any of us that there, there we have we have to get to a point where we have to we're going to either decide whether we're just simply going to lie down and decide we're going to desperately wait for China to develop into a consumer economy so we can send them Mercedes and hope that they don't build Mercedes themselves. One of the things here is that that thing I mentioned about someone saying that they uh, stripped female detainees naked and handcuffed them to things mm. uh, like beds or pipes. There's video of that of of that person explaining that. And you do wonder if there is someone in the Department of Foreign Affairs who saw that in the BBC and there was a sort of a, well, time to get another tepid response to any questions we might get about that. Oh, God. I think think I've adverted to it before. I remember in 1997, Tony Blair was elected. He brought Labour back into power. I don't know if he was the first one, but uh, Robin Cook was the first Foreign Secretary. And the Labour Labour announced, Tony Blair announced, that his government was going to pursue an ethical foreign policy. Now, I know a lot of people with strong opinions about the war in Iraq, the second war in Iraq, might find that, that was, there was a sort of a, a grotesque uh, comedy to that statement. But everybody cheered. You know, it's a great idea. And I know that we did in, the, in this country too. All the right-thinking people said, this is where we're going. And I thought, here we are. What is that? We're 23 years later, and this is what passes. What we're doing now passes for ethical foreign policy. And as I say, leave it aside. Okay, let's pretend off. We don't, ethics is... You know, we're like whatever Lord Palmerston, wherever who said England, England does not have friends or enemies, merely interests. Even if we look at the world like that, what the Chinese are doing at the moment, or trying to try to do at the moment to Australia, should at least be a warning. And what's been trying to do to lots of other countries, and to a greater or lesser extent, should be a warning. That you know what, what you know that joke. It's, it's a great favourite of yours. I never thought that the tiger would eat my face. Said the woman after who, having voted for the tiger, face was. The tiger eat face eating party. Oh yes, yes. I mean, one of the things that I I do find rather amusing about this, because Michael, if you can't find the humour in a genocide, what are you even doing talking about it? Is that uh, I keep bringing this to the department, or I keep talking about this on the podcast, considering that my like geopolitical views are not terribly soft and hippieish. No, people don't say, "Oh, there goes." There goes Gary, peace and love, man. Yeah, I mean, very few people could even say, there goes Gary, a man who has certainly never advocated for the use of chemical warfare. Right. But at the same time, I mean, part of geopolitics is dealing with terrible people because it's to your advantage while absolutely understanding they're terrible people. Yes. And also, at least not pretending that they're not terrible people. Whereas this just seems to be like a sort of, we'll ignore everything they do and we kind of get benefit from it. Even though, when you look at the long term, letting a country which does this grow more and more legitimate and hollow out international institutions so it can wear them like a cheap suit, probably isn't in our interest. You can do that with Iraq, maybe. I mean, it's not much fun for the people who live in Iraq, but you, you mentioned after the, the war what they did. Listen, Saddam was a friend for a while. Because Saddam was fighting a war against Iran, and Iran was the bad guy, so Saddam was, you know, okay, well, we can do business with Saddam. We, people do business with bad people all over the world. But, you know, at the end of the day, at the level of the geopolitical, Iraq, meh. China is on the way to being the world's most powerful country. It's going to be the world's second most populous country. It's going to be the world's biggest economy. It's going to be... And if you keep, if, if you, it's going to be too late in 20 or 30 years time to stay. You know what? Maybe we should stand up to the Chinese because by that stage they'll have bought everybody off anyway. There is going to be that wonderful moment where people look around and just go, you know what? Multipolarity is fucking shit. <laughs> Do you remember the days when we used to, have, we had one superpower only and it was called America? You know what? Wasn't so bad. I, it had problems, but it wasn't actively genociding people. And or making very high-tech means of making that easier to do globally. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing, the, the issue I actually have here, because most of the time, like it, it's half the world away. It's about as far away from us as we can get. A large part of China's strategy is normalization and legitimization of itself. So it gets involved in things that don't seem important, like uh, town partnerships or diplomatic outreach. Anything it can do to integrate itself and appear legitimate because that covers um, that gives it a protection against a lot of these attacks and also enables it to continue further burrowing through international institutions and Ireland is at the very best complicit in that so it's not that we are uninvolved in this 
we by our actions are actively helping things like this happen. Because if this was, if there was a, a threat to China's social standing based on this outside of countries that they consider to be either opponents or in some case that they can be worked around, they would probably stop or at least, you know, hide it a bit. And also, there is going to be politics within China. And if one particular politics is winning, one well, of the people who are the proponents of that politics are going to be on the up and up. If and when those politics start to fail to work for China and for the people in China and for the party, then those people become weakened. I just don't think showing the people actively committing the genocide that there's no consequences to carrying out the genocide is a situation that in the long term is likely to end well. I think a different incentive base should be established. You kind of have to wonder right now with the Uyghurs, or with any other group, but say with the Uyghurs, because they're, they're the, the group that, to whom it's happening right now, and most publicly. At what point does it become morally impossible for the West to pretend it isn't happening? At no point. There's no point at which this is... It's morally impossible. Most people aren't even aware of it. Of the amount who are aware of it, I mean, a fraction of those care about it. I mean, but I'll put it this way, Gary. Do we actually have to get the point where they have set up actual extermination camps? Or there are Rome, there are bands of people going around. The, the world went through this little conniption of self-examination after the genocide in Rwanda. And we looked and said, oh my God, how did we not do something? How did we? Was this... Was this a racist thing? Was it because we didn't care, because these people were black Africans? What was going on? How could this happen? Particularly horrific. I mean, it is, in a, set, in, a, in a way, the most terrible genocide in the history of the world because it took place in such a short period of time. And also it was such a low tech. It was such a horribly hand-to-hand -hand kind of a genocide. But it was over, relatively speaking, quickly. This is an extended, almost slow motion affair. And you just wonder... If there's ever going to be a point, you know the old salami tactics thing they used to, they used to joke about in Westminster, that they, it's always going to be slice by slice by slice, and they'll stop. At any point that they feel there's resistance, they stop slicing. But it's always a thin slice. They never make it so explicit until eventually you get to the point where there's no salami left. I just wonder what, at what particular point do people look at the Uyghur situation and say, hmm, this is no longer... This is no longer a, a tolerable situation. I, I, I've done a fair bit on this, both interviewing people and uh, just writing about it, and just private discussions as well. Um, like I was talking to Cohen Stoop, who is the European uh, Outreach Director, I think, or Policy Director for the World Uyghur Forum. And I was talking to him and talking about you know, things people could do. And you don't really want to just say in the interview, but you're fucked though, aren't you? I mean, realistically, you're just fucked. Because if anyone was going to care, they'd care already. There is almost a sense when you talk to some people about this, that if they could do it, the best policy for Uyghurs in China is either to just become Chinese, literally say, okay, I'm not you, I'm Chinese. I'm in some sense assimilate so totally that they disappear, if that was possible. Or let's just get out, get on, like the, the Han Chinese who were, being who were being persecuted in Vietnam in the 70s, get on the boats and get out to the sea and try and hope that somebody, somebody will take you in. Oh, and take your entire family with you, because if you flee and are seen to have fled they will take your family yeah yeah you have to take granny too everybody goes but um yeah and by and you get some you get the first chinese restaurants opening in ireland by the way i mean i as i said i find i do find it deeply amusing that's me bringing it up because you're talking to these people who are utterly respectable and we'll talk to you at length about the duties that we have to our fellow man and the human rights treaties and never again and all that horse shit. But then what I talk about, but what about this? They're like, oh, well, that's very complicated. Yeah, no, as I say, exactly the same people will actually do, will actually try and pass binding resolutions that will affect, say, like investment or disinvestment in Israel because Israel is a genocidal apartheid state. Anyway... We shall return to it, I'm sure, sooner rather than later. No, I, I think maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll leave it for a while. Get into like painting or something. It's like George Bush, except I didn't cause all those people to die. Well, no, it's funny you should mention painting, Gary. What's that, Michael? Is that another seamless transition? That is a seamless transition. Um, is it Catherine Murphy? Am I getting the name right? Catherine Murphy. Artists must be supported. Yeah. 
She is working through a plan to introduce a pilot to give a guaranteed basic income to artists. Because, Michael, artists have always produced their best work when um, kept out of poverty. Well, yes, actually, she, she's pointed out that the, the COVID epidemic has basically cut down the creative artistic sector. Um, that kind of that kind of puzzles me. You know, there are two issues, and well, many, many issues here, but first of all, I kind of puzzled by that because speaking of somebody who has successfully avoided writing a novel during COVID, um, or indeed a slim volume of some of the greatest poetry written in the in the last 50 years, I've managed to, to, to fail to do both of those things. I would have thought that you're stuck at home, you've nothing to do. That's kind of exactly what you want if you're an artist. If you're, Because if you're an artist, do you know what the thing is artists do, Gary? They make art. It's not supposed to be, do you know, I don't know if I want to be an accountant. I think I'll go into the art business. Also, I mean, if you're looking around you and you can't find some inspiration at the minute, like, look up, look down, look side to side, turn it all around. There's inspiration pretty much everywhere. There's a plague. This is a time to make great art. If you can't make great art now, maybe you need to go do something else. Maybe become a craftsman. It's perfectly respectable. Isolation. There's the genocide. There's the economic issues. Insurrections. Disaffection. Go the other way and remind people about the fantastic beauty of life. There's tons of stuff you could do. It's great. And, and as you say, one of the great things that we know is that artists never produce their best art except when they're, when they're getting paid before by the state. I mean, if, if modern art has taught me anything, Michael, it's that we should remove all limitations and constraints upon artists, and that will lead to an outpouring of fantastic work. Especially, again, I iterate, if they're paid for by the state. I mean, for example, you if you were to wander around and look at the art produced in Germany in 1933 to 1945, or in the Soviet Union, 19, say, 1918 to 1992, I mean, the quality of state-sponsored art, Gary, is even look at Ireland. Go down the motorways and look at the wonderful art. Look at the, the civic spaces. Look at the architecture. Look at the buildings that we build. Look at the civic structures we create. Art sponsored by the state is such a soul-soaring success. Of course it should be. If you're going to be petty-fogging, if you're going to be a picky, bicky, nasty bastard, and we haven't seen I don't, the details of I don't imagine she's going to offer massive lumpy stipends to artists. But there are questions like, first of all, you asked me the question before, who would get this? No, I think the simplest way would be people who I know, uh, uh, friends of mine, uh, friends of friends of mine, and people who are recommended by people who are friends of friends of mine. I think that's probably the way it would work, but maybe not. Maybe there would be some other criteria. The amount that they would receive, I can't it's Listen, we already have this to an extent with Estonia, I suppose. Why is, why is this sector, and God, isn't it depressing that these people talk about the arts sector, Gary? It's like the tourism sector, the soft cheese sector, the soul soars, yes. Wordsworth was a very important part of the poetry sector in the Lake District in, uh, in England, you know. Byron is quite an important part in the poetry and art sector era in Greece, as are, for example, the temples in the Parthenon. Florence is rich. I mean, God almighty, who takes this shit up? Why, why then? Why artists? Why do they get an income? Why, why not everybody? Why not? Why not shit kickers or cow wrestlers? I do. I do like the argument that we've got to do this because it is is beneficial to society. Artists build the soul of the nation, which I think ignores the very simple fact that most artists, most artists, will never produce a single item of worth. Most art is shit. I remember me for years being involved in. The, well, it's ridiculous now, but with certain group of friends, I remember there was this this never-ending discussion about. Art, in the context of 20th century conceptual art, people say, that's not art. And that this t ridiculous conversations, what is art? Is that art? Is this art? And I say, it doesn't matter. Call it art, call it not art. The only question is, if it, is it good art? 
Now, I don't know, did you see there's quite a bit of a discussion recently about Damien Hirst's uh, latest, well, I think there was, I don't know if it was a retrospective or an exhibition of new work. And somebody quoted um, a quote which is associated with him when he produced one of his first pieces, which was a, I think it was a cow's head with maggots. And he said he looked forward to the day when he want, he'd be able to produce really bad art and get away with it. Not listen, I don't want to get into some kind of grumpy old man discussion of whether or not Tracy Enham, Tracy Enham's bed is art or not. I said before this, that I, my, my issue with 20th century conceptual art is that Marcel Duchamp did a, did a funny joke at an exhibition sometime around 1917. And it was a good joke, but everybody's been telling the same joke ever since and calling it art. And actually, the only thing that's really interesting about most modern art is not the art, but the excitement that everybody gets about the price that people pay for it. I think that's actually what's most the most driving thing about most people's interest in contemporary art. People like Jeff Koons or whoever. Millions and millions of dollars. People like Damien Hurst getting bought by Saatchi and Saatchi. And of course, the fact that this is a kind of a weird pyramid selling scheme where you have the people on the inside who buy up the art to drive the, par- the, the price up and then sell it on. But you have to make the price is maintained as a weird fiction because otherwise no... Nobody wants to admit, oh, actually, it's all shit. And just, do you remember Gerald Ratner? Does that name mean anything to you? Gerald Ratner was the, I don't know, he was the second or third generation. Anyway, there was a generation of, a, there was a jewellery company in England, jewellers called Ratners, and mostly they sold very, very low grade, like thin silver plate, thin gold plate, that kind of stuff. Uh, a, a, a goblets and a tray of, silver plate for 25 quid, a gold earrings for a tenner, you know, it was very, very low grade. But they were very successful and they made a lot of money. And at a conference, I don't know if it was a CBI conference or a Tory party conference, so he famously said, you know one of the reasons why, how we can sell our, our products so cheaply? It's because they're crap. Well, that's an unusual thing for a CEO to come out with. Well, it was an unusual thing and it bankrupt Ratner's. Rather than be one of those stories where and everybody just went on with their business, no. Ratners went under. It just destroyed them. Nobody went to Ratners anymore. Now, that's one of the problems of modern art. Nobody's going to come out who's in. Charles Archie's never going to come out and say, this is this is crap. But that's not the question for most of the people who are going to be on this income. I just don't understand why we talk about, you know, the, these people, if there is an art sector in Ireland which supports the Irish economy in any way, it's dead people, Gary. It's dead people, a lot of them who didn't even live here. It's people coming over to have some sense they're going to the same country as Beckett, even though Beckett pretty well wrote everything he ever wrote in Paris, or James Joyce, who was doing his writing in Trieste. Uh, it's to go around on Bloomsday dressed up in a stupid hat and eat a, a Gorgonzola sandwich in Davy Burns. It's to go where Heaney was from, or Patrick Kavanagh. And to listen to people playing music or something like that. I, don't know. I work on a I work on a very simple basis with this. That's this. Did W. B. Yeats speak in favour of it in relation to arts funding? And if he didn't, then I will oppose it on principle. <laughs> Mostly because I want these people to have to come out and talk about how great Yeats was, given that Yeats was like a sherry or two away from full blown fascism. Ah, that's not fair. No, no, but it is funny. Ezra Pound was a full-blown fascist. No doubt. Elliot, not maybe a fascist, conservative type, probably anti-Semitic. Yeats was just a, a little bit peculiar. But I don't care about that because, I'm going to say something controversial here, Yeats was a very great poet. I said it, I don't care. I'm willing to take the controversial stance, Gary. Yeats was a very, very great poet. Now, Yeats may well have said something about artists getting supported. I don't know. Could well have done. Actually, there was a game launch recently. One of the biggest game launches in history. A game called Cyberpunk. Very divisive launch. But I played it, I finished it. What's interesting is at the very end of it, uh, before the game ends, the some of the last lines of dialogue is actually uh, their... There's different endings, but each one is a section of sailing to Byzantium. Oh, right, yeah. Just kind of comes out of nowhere as well. Well, it's very popular these days, the sailing. Well, it's always been popular in the 20th century. It's, it is 
I suppose that's, that is the sense of what the 20th century was like, and the 21st century isn't getting much better. Didn't we once do a review of our favourite Yeats poems? God, did we? I think Probably. we did. Sailing to Byzantium, is that the one that ends up what with... Uh, is that the centre cannot hold and all mere anarchy is loosed upon the world? No, sailing to Byzantium is... Uh, that is no country for old men. No, that's not... Is that what... This is no country for old men? Uh, this is... Where the salmon falls, the mackerel cowed seas. Less the, the the old man, the, an aged man, is, is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon just a coat stick. upon a stick. Unless the soldiers clap its hands and sing and louder sing. For every tatter in its mortal dress. But what's the end of it? Once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enamelling to keep a drowsy emperor awake. Or sit upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or past to come. To come. It was, I, I was unconvinced by it. I thought that the I thought he he was actually the passion and the, the the poetry is stronger when he's talking about the the macrosols. You were thinking of um, the second coming. The second coming, yeah. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. The blood-dimmed tide. The, wor- the, the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. I, well, I was thinking of it, particularly in the context, you could, it's the, that, the, that, the very end bit that it seemed to that really resonated with the... Uh, that millenarian sense of the 20th century where it was, oh God, um, what's it real? The shadows of indignant birds when vexed by a rocking cradle. What rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. God, that's good stuff. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun. Oh, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, but we're getting kind of distracted into the uh, the poetry of Yeats. And I'm perfectly happy to give Yeats a, li- a living wage if Yeats comes along to claim it. Yes, but you're not Yeats, and mostly because Yeats could support himself for most of that. Um, sailing to Byzantium, if you liked the my uh, amateurish uh, uh, recitation of it, is in his collection The Tower, which is very, uh, very worth reading. His The Tower is probably his masterwork. Anyway. Doesn't have my favourite poem of his, but it is very good. What's his, your favourite poem? Actually, does it have... Um, I've totally forgotten the fucking name of it now. You know that when you just... When you're asked something, it just goes? <laughs> yeah, it flies. You can actually feel it going and going away from you. And it's like, what's your phone number? And then you just stand there like a gormless fucking idiot. I always liked... Um, what's the one? Sept- September 1913? That one. And the old... Was the the... the your old crone at the greasy till adds prayer to shivering prayer. Romantic Ireland's dead and gone. It's with O'Leary in the grave. Or something something like that. Anyway. anyway uh, the readers can make their mind up and if they feel that they want to support artists, maybe the best thing to do would be to go out and buy some local art. Yeah, and um, please God don't buy amateur poetry. Well, it stops being amateur then, doesn't it? I mean, true, but I mean... I said before that most artists will never produce a single thing of worth, and that's nothing against artists, it's just good art is really rare in any period, but bad poetry is, is like listening to someone try and play the accordion, or sorry, the, the violin for the first time. Can I, 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 I don't know, should I say this really? Because it sounds unkind. Oh well, I think I might have said it already, so it's used. Many, some, some years ago, I was driving out of my house, and uh, as I came out into the road, I just I turned the radio on, and it was uh, a poetry show, an art show. And I think it was, I think it was Theo Dorgan was presenting it. Theo Dorgan's a poet from, we'll say Kerry, I think. Anyway, so he was he was reading out some poems, two or three poems, and I had missed the be- the intro to the piece, so I was just hearing who I I assumed was Theo Dorgan reading. And I was driving, I think God, Theo has gone off. 
God, I think somebody should say, Theo, maybe we'll keep this in the drawer for a while, give it a bit of work, maybe work on something else and come back, because mm, it's not your best, Theo. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Theo Dorgan, but I think he's a good, you know, good poet. Gary, the pleasure, the unalloyed pleasure I felt when he said, and there's a selection of some poems from the latest collection published by Michael D. Higgins. It was just, it was one of those little moments of pure, innocent pleasure. There is nothing so nice in the li in life when one of your prejudices and your stereotypes your, is confirmed for you. And you, because I didn't know it was him, it was perfect. If I'd known it was him, I wouldn't have been able to trust my judgment. I wouldn't have thought, ah, well, I knew it was him, so I'm so, pre I'm so prejudiced against the poor man and his poetry that I, I'm not in a position to actually make a reasonable judgment. But that moment, it was, I, thought, I thought it was Theodorgans, and I thought it was awful. I thought, oh, that's wonderful. But there's Michael D. Higgins with many published collections of poems and me with not one. Blood in the Moon. Finally remembering the name. Very good. Anyway, other than art, is there anything else happening in the world, Gary? Oh, there was just one, uh, two, two things I, I wanted to mention uh, briefly. One is Ian Paisley got into a bit of trouble for saying the phrase, uh, the Catholic IRA. Uh, in what what was he sort what was he implying by this? What was he understood to be saying? He said, "Today is Holocaust Memorial Day." Jesus, there is a lot of genocide in this show, where we remember victims of Holocaust and other genocide around the world. And in Northern Ireland, of course, we remember the border campaign and the genocide of sectarian murder, where the IRA, the Catholic IRA, murdered Protestants at the border. Right? Yeah. Hmm. I don't think that made, meant the, the technical definition of genocide, though. I don't think it was anywhere close to meeting it. Genocide is a tricky one to actually hit the legal definition of. No, perhaps not. But I tell you, there, I mean, there's an element of truth in it insofar as this. It does seem to be in the case that there was a definite campaign on one side of the border that all of those, the farms that were Protestant-owned farms, say, on the borders in, like, Fermanagh, uh, County Derry... I don't know, Armagh, maybe Tyrone, that those farms on the borders, that there was, a, there was an active campaign to clear those people out. Whether or not you could call that a genocide, or, it, it was at least, there was an element of ethnic cleansing about it anyway, that these people were to be driven out. Now, whether it was just because it was the, our land, we're getting our land back, or whether it was kind of a, a strategic, tactical move where they wanted shall we say inverted commas friendly people on that land as they were going to and fro across the border but that did happen and it was definitely it was definitely sectarian it reminds me of that joke tommy ternan did that got him in trouble he was in new york and he was trying to break america i don't know for the second or third time and the passion of the christ had just come out and there was a lot of hoo-ha particularly in, in new york uh, amongst the critics saying that it was grossly anti-Semitic and it was basically a kind of an anti-Semitic snuff movie and very negative, not universally. I mean, it got mixed reviews, some massive, massively positive, but some. And in New York, it got very poor reviews in most of the papers. Anyway, Tiernan, you have to say whatever Tiernan is, and I think he's one of those, he can be absolutely just missed completely and then he sometimes can be just inspired and hilariously funny he's doing this in a new theater in new york and i can still I, I saw the video of it he's there and people are saying the passion is anti-semitic and he pauses and you know that look on his face that sort of impish grin when he leans forward like a slightly maniacal look on his face and there's this little, there's this one little pause and he says well it wasn't the fucking mexicans <laughs> and i just i'm sorry it's funny and that's the test of a joke, how offensive. You know, I, I, lots of comedians I've heard say this over the I mean, probably the likes of, oh, Seinfeld or Bill Burr or whoever saying the test of an offensive joke is if, it's, if you're going to be offensive, then you have to be, yeah, it has to be very funny. Do you remember how he made that worse for himself? Remind me. He went to, um, he was at Electric Picnic and he was doing a Q&A the Hot Press had organised and someone asked him about it. Um, and he went through it and then I have the quote here Michael uh, it's all about reckless and irresponsible and joyful it's not about being careful or mannered it's trusting your own soul and allowing whatever lunacy is inside you to come out in a special protected environment where people know that nothing is being taken seriously that's the first of two paragraphs 
Let me give you the second. Right, first paragraph is okay. But yeah. these Jews, these fucking Jew cunts come up to me, fucking Christ-killing bastards, fucking six <gasps> million. I would have got ten or twelve million out of that. No oh, fucking no. problem. Oh, no, 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 fucking no. two at a time they would have gone. Hold hands, get in there, leave us your teeth and your glasses. You are not serious. You did not say that. <laughs> Oh, my God. Did he actually say that? So the Irish Times says, and then they follow it with, when reproduced in print, this passage certainly has the power to shock, and it has been roundly condemned. How is he still? How is he on ten? How? I mean, oh, my God. Kevin Myers got cancelled for a badly crafted sense, sense, sentence and sentiment where he was trying in a ham-fisted kind of way to pay a compliment to a couple of women in show business in England, which fed into, I admit, a kind of a, a, a classic trope of anti-Semitism. But it, uh, this was, very Myers was a man with a proven track record on Holocaust denial, on the hist- on the Second World War, on the State of Israel, on anti-Semitism. And he got cancelled. And Tommy Tiernan is on the telly doing a chat show. I, uh, I'll give you another couple of quotes from the Irish Times article, uh, because they're fantastic. <clears throat> the person who conducted the electric picnic interview uh, explained that the rant that had caused the controversy came after 30 very entertaining minutes. Oh, well, then it's all right, sure. And then the interviewer said, I'm not anti-Semitic myself, but I did find myself laughing. Um, In the context, the remarks were not meant as anti-Semitic in any way. I am not anti-Semitic, but I found myself laughing because it was Tommy Tiernan in full flight as a comedic performer, dramatising how to to really offend. Uh, The Jewish council were less... uh, Impressed. I would say significantly less. Uh, they were also particularly annoyed at the fact people laughed throughout. I'm a Tommy. I, jeepers. I, I didn't know that. I did. That was God. I genuinely. That I'm. It's not. I. God. You just, I can imagine in a certain context saying something like that. In a, but the, it's the details make it just horrific. Precise things in it. That. That's just. No, I'm, that's that's not. I don't know. I th- I think if with the correct pause between get in there and leave us your teeth and your glasses, I think you could pull it off. I don't think that Houdini, possessed of the Holy Spirit, on the best day ever, could have pulled that one off. Well, Tommy Tiernan has a chat show, and you don't. Tommy Tiernan has a chat show, and I don't, and that is true. And Michael D. Higgins is the president of the of the country for the second time, and can get a p- collection of poetry. P- Published any day of the week, I imagine. It is a funny old world, Gary. I just saw the end of the Irish Times report on this. Next month, Turnin does a series of dates in the US, where remarks of this nature could be even less popular. You think? Is it possible? Well, this is an interesting one. If you were to take Turnin's remarks about the Holocaust at face value, it would be hard not to view them as wicked. But you might also choose to see them in the way he says they were intended. He says that we consider them in the context of an entertainer reaching around during a live interview for dramatic and extreme imagery, the decision on how to interpret them lies with the receiver. I actually, I, I, I think this was... I, I don't really see the point of making any sort of issue about what was said in 2009. I just feel that if this was not Tommy Tiernan, and this was a different subject, uh, the Irish Times would not have said the decision on how to interpret this lies with the receiver. No. To see, I mean, okay, we're living in a postmodernist world. I think whoever it was, Derrida, whoever said it, that there is the author is the author is dead. We are all the author now. Every text is given, and we create the text ourselves. So there is no such thing as the objective text. We are, are the interpreters. We create the text. No, I also think that's to a certain degree a lot of wank, and I think that saying that is a degree of wank too. Uh, you have given me pause for thought there, Gary. Hmm. I'm, I'm a fairly, I'm a fairly strong, a comedian should say what the fuck he likes kind of guy, but I think you've just found out where I think I stop. 
I would really like to see what his delivery is like on that. Because Tommy Tiernan is excellent at delivering material. And I, it says people were laughing all the way through. Okay, it took place 30 minutes in, so the crowd is probably already on your side. If he was able to make people laugh at that, I'm very interested in just the technical side of how he did that. Because that's, like, to get that one true without people actually going, what? Is, uh, is actually pretty impressive. Unless, yeah, without creating it just a deadly... Because if you create even four or five seconds of silence in that, you're gone. Once you, If you give people a moment of reflection, they will stop laughing. You have to keep them reflexively laughing, where it's like, and I say reflexively deliberately, that where the, the, the laugh goes straight to the stomach, it doesn't bypass the brain, you just, it, it's an automatic response almost, because I think... Bad comedian, or even a, just a good comedian, trying that joke is not getting through that. Like, you'll get to hold hands, get in there, and then by the time you're saying, leave us your teeth and your glasses, the cl- crowd is just glaring at you. They're throwing things. You, you're, the security has been called and you're, you're heading for the helicopter. Anyway, Gary, you said you two things. Oh, you yes, I wanted, to, I wanted to actually say something positive about the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Now I know that the world has genuinely gone mad. Yes, the, the Irish, uh, the IHREC, came out and said that the Dying with Dignity Bill needs significant changes and that does not ensure adequate safeguards to protect a person's right to life. Now, I actually, I I don't really have a strong opinion on this issue. I I haven't thought about it enough to really have a strong uh, opinion on it. I do generally think that this is likely to have consequences beyond what the conversation has been uh, related to, and that it should have a wider conversation. But I'm not, I mean, I, I don't... I don't position myself anywhere particularly strongly. But it was the the IHREC coming out and saying something that might not be popular, which hmm. is not something I ever expect from the IHREC. Now, I would suspect, based on the fact they've come out, that there is far more uh, opposition to this in certain sectors than I had expected there to be. Because while I think it's good that, you know, they've, they've broken away from their we-will-say-literally-anything-as-long-as-it's-popular past... I think there's still a lot of that there. And if they're saying this, indicates that they think that this is the way to go. This is the path of least resistance. Now, I, I would qualify the word popular there. I would say popular in certain in certain sectors or in certain places. I don't know if they necessarily care that much about if it's popular with the great unwashed or not. Oh, no, 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 no. But yeah, I think on the basis that they're saying this is an indication that even amongst those people that we should pay attention to and are right-thinking and decent people, there, mu- there, there must be a degree of opposition to this that they hadn't expected. Which doesn't surprise me because in other places more similar to ourselves that have recently looked at this, there's been very strong opposition from within the medical profession. Surprisingly strong opposition uh, inside the medical profession, actually. It's, I, I had just sort of expected them to sort of go along with this. Uh, I think there is... There are absolutely concerns about this, but I just thought they would just kind of pass it through because, like, you know, it just seems of the moment. It's progressive. It's modern. It's about autonomy. It's about freedom. It's about dignity. It's all about the right things. So, yeah, you would expect that it would go through on the nod. But, well, we shall see. But uh, I suppose it's a, it's a good boy treat for the uh, Irish Human Rights Commission. Yeah, I mean, they, they did something I think is, is probably correct. Again, not because I, I have a particularly strong opinion on this, but because I think there's been basically no actual public debate about what this would actually mean or what it would do or the consequences of it. Well, if nothing else, they have surprised us. And that's worth that's a, that's worthwhile giving them a toffee. Good on you, Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. I'm sure you'll fuck it up promptly. Anyway, I suppose we should be back on Friday, COVID permitting. Stay at home, wash your hands and mind yourselves. All the best.